This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. This episode's guest is Rob Cross. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. He's also the co-founder and director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of more than 150 leading organisations. He has studied the underlying networks of relationships within effective organisations and the collaborative practices of high performers for more than 20 years. Working with over 300 organisations and reaching thousands of leaders from the front line to the C-suite, he has identified specific ways to cultivate vibrant, effective networks at all levels of an organisation and any career stage. As well as co-authoring The Micro-Stress Effect, he is also the author of Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead and Restore Your Well-Being. Rob, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. Congratulations on this book. This has book is so practical with so many insights and it received high praise from many heavyweights in our field, such as Dan Pink, Susan David, Amy Edmondson and Dory Clark, no less. So congratulations uh, on that. So what we might do is, is we might go on to that topic of a micro stress. So I'm really glad someone is shining a light on this. This book has uh, explained something to me that I found really hard to articulate a couple of years ago when I myself was suffering from micro stress. So micro stress is, if I'm to put my words on it, it's 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 the cumulative effect of stress. It's like a death by a thousand cuts. It's kind of hard to put a finger on it. Is that what we're talking about it for our listeners, if they're to understand what a micro stress is? Yeah, absolutely. And um, what we like to think about it as are these small moments of stress that are coming at us through connections in our lives because of how hyperconnected we are. So it is it can take the form of, you know, professionally uh, sensing misalignment with a colleague on a call and saying, OK, I've got to figure this out right in the coming months and worrying about it. It's not a fight or flight response. You know what I mean? It's not a huge stressor on you, but it goes in the back of your brain. And then next call, you're seeing a team member that needs to be coached for the third time. And you're going, how am I going to do that and keep their engagement? And when am I going to get the time to do that? How do I position it again? goes in the back of your mind. And then 10 seconds later, you get a text from one of your children and you can't tell if it's something serious or they're over it in five seconds and you worry about it for uh, for three hours, you know, again, in the, in the back of your mind. Uh, and that's what we were seeing as we went through all these interviews was it was never the big moments of stress that was really crushing people that existed and it definitely had you know negative impacts on people's lives but what was really crushing people systemically was this accumulation of these small moments that um, our, our brains almost don't even register 
You know what I mean? It's just what successful people do, what they get over, but the accumulation of them and the, you know, the velocity of them is at a level that our brains just weren't meant to deal with. And the reality that they're coming at us through connections in our lives uh, also has a bigger impact. It's not disassociated stress, like the war in the Ukraine or social justice issues. If I am uh, frustrated with you and I get one of these, it spikes it even a little bit more, right? Or if I love you, you know, like a child or a parent that I'm worried about, um, it spikes it even more. And so that was really the focus for us with these small moments that uh, are accumulating and really trapping people in hidden ways today. And, and again, this book, then I think it's really so timely. We talk about post-pandemic burnout. And again, this is some people might say, ah, oh, sure, it's it's not it's not cancer. What's wrong with you? They might say, listen, soldier on, just get on with it. You know, what would you say to people who might say, listen, just get on with it? I, I think that's the problem. Yeah, that's, you know, I would go, we'd go through these interviews and, and you'd hear hundreds and hundreds of these interviews of very successful people, you know, conventionally successful, great organizations. And you would hear almost everybody had stretches in their lives where they went kind of three, five, eight years in this bubble of activity, you know, just trying to kind of hit the goals they had, hit the targets they had, hit the things they created for their themselves and their families. You know what I mean? In terms of the schools we needed to be in and the neighborhoods and things like that. And they wake up one day and they're, they're just shaking their head going, how did I get here? <laughs> you know, I'm so far away from where I meant to be in terms of who I am and what I value and what I'm invested in. And it was very rarely big moments. You know, it was always this accumulation of small. And that's really the seductive thing is all of this seems like something that a normal person just gets over, right? <laughs> but it's the volume and the velocity of it coming at us that's really different today uh, that we're finding uh, the people that actually address do, you know, they do do much better ultimately. And it's that mental load, it's the emotional load that builds up over time. Is that drip, drip uh, effect? Yeah. And if I could say, like, I think your, your, you know, your point about coming through the pandemic is really powerful because what we've seen is, we have increased the, the degree to which people experience these stresses through the ways we're connected, right? At work and at home in different ways. And if anything, the velocity has gone up. So just as a simple example, pre-pandemic, people used to come to me and they would complain, gosh, Rob, I've got eight one-hour meetings. I can't get anything done, you know? And now post-pandemic, somebody came up with a great idea that let's have 30-minute meetings, you know, throughout this all. And now we all have 16 30-minute meetings in our day and we're more um, exhausted than ever. You know, we're more intense in those motions. We're moving across them more rapidly. We end the day with a to-do list based on 16, not eight meetings. And all this accumulated across the different ways we're collaborating with email, with instant messaging, with the team's collaborative spaces, uh, the other applications that most organizations are using, the always-on mentality in our personal lives, too. Um, it just it increases all these small touch points, right? So legitimately, the degree to which we experience stress through these connections has gone up through the pandemic. Um, and I, it's interesting to me because I hear people talking about burnout as a product of the workload. And I don't think that's gone up that much. You know, I think what's really gone up is the, the degree to which we're exposed to these stresses in different ways that we're not really um, taught how to, how to cope with. You know, the typical approach is you do mindfulness or gratitude or meditation or things like that. And they're very, very valid, very effective. But at the heart of it, all they're going to let you do is persist in the system you've let build around you. You know, and what we want to offer here is there's an alternative to actually shaping that system in certain ways that can have a, have a pretty big impact. I was reading this book 
this is where I was five or six years ago. I wish I had it. And what I didn't realize was the impact that it was having on me. One of those impacts is the impact on the brain that you talk about. What's the neuroscience or the research that you have that's the impact of microstress? Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. So Karen, my co-author, uh, invested a lot of time really exploring the neuroscience aspect of it. And the, at the heart of it, what we know is that the, the, these micro moments of stress, they don't put us in the fight or flight response mode in the way that big stress does, like a toxic boss or something that's really extreme uh, in our lives. So our brains almost don't register it, but our bodies absorb the stress uh, in the same way they would more conventional forms of, uh, of big moments of stress. And so, you know, it, it affects blood pressure, it affects, you know, our exhaustion at the end of the day, but our brains aren't necessarily picking that up, you know, in ways that, that a fight or flight kind of mechanism would. And so we end the day exhausted and can't quite put a finger on what just happened <laughs> for most of us. Um, and it also has very real uh, biological impacts, right? I mentioned blood pressure, you know, other things like that, that we see are associated with it. One study uh, from a wonderful professor in Northeastern University, showed that you are, if you are eat a meal, right, the same meal, but you eat one, you know, one without being under social stress like this, and the other same exact meal within two hours of being under social stress like this, uh, the meal you eat when you're under the social stress or within two hours of being in it, uh, you, you metabolize by adding 104 calories to that meal, right? So that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you extrapolate that out over a year, that's 11 pounds a year that is literally just associated with the stress that we're experiencing, right? And the way it's changing kind of how our, uh, how our bodies react. And so the, the, you know, way that the neuroscientists would describe it to us in layman's terms, because that's not our domain, was it's kind of like children jumping on a bed, you know, and everything's going along fine. <laughs> Right up until that last child hits the bed and the, the frame comes down or it's like erosion on a mountain, right? Uh, wind erosion on a mountain. It's a slow, you know, kind of grinding force that is, uh, is really having a material impact on all of us. I can attest to that fact of the 11 pounds. <laughs> I have lost weight from reducing the stress and the micro stresses in my life. People ask me, are you exercising more? Are you eating differently? Nothing. It is simply down to reducing the microstresses. <laughs> so I, I highly recommend people read this book. And I'm opening it up the page now on page 13. And you have 14 common microstresses by category. So the I, I call out the three categories. It's capacity draining microstresses, emotion depleting microstresses, and identity challenging microstresses. So Maybe talk us through a few of them, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so as we went through the interviews, what we would see is uh, some subset of them created stress because they drained our ability to get done what we needed to get done, right? And that could take the form of misalignment with colleagues, and especially where most organizations are in uh, uh, modes where they're putting cross-functional teamwork as a uh, primary goal, right? Well, enterprise for, uh, collaboration, one firm cultures, things like that. So it's put people um, in situations where they're typically not just on one of these teams, but on five or six of these efforts in general. And it results in a lot of opportunity for misalignment where people agree in the room and then go off and pull in slightly different directions, right? They're incented to their, what they care about in the work is different. Um, and so that's one. Another one is um, what I call small performance misses, right? And so it's not so much 
much the the really big slacker that's hitting a lot of the people today. It's the um, the fact that again, people are in five or six of these efforts, and if you happen to own one of them, and there are four people on your effort, and they come back to your effort at 95% done, right? So they're almost done. They've almost done exactly what they agreed to. But the, you know, one person didn't understand or another boss pulled them in a different direction. Somebody else had a sick child. There's always reasons, right? For why they're not 100% done. The problem is it's, you know, 5% times four people to you. And that means 20% impact because of the interdependence of the work. And what you see is people are then stuck with this decision. Do I work through the night or under deliver? Um, and most people would choose to work through the night and all the stories we heard. And then what you've done is you've, you've signaled to people that, okay, 95% was good enough there, maybe 90% uh, the next time. And I don't mean that because I think people are nefarious. You know, what I became very clear on as I went through these interviews is that people are making decisions today, um, not on how to excel, but on which balls to drop. Right. They're trying to figure out where there's slack in the system. And if you become that, then you're going to get you know more and more uh, efforts pushing on you. And those work through the night uh, nights have impact. Right. It pulls you out of interactions with activities you care about, loved ones, whatever it may be that, that's there. So there were five that, that fit into that category right around, you know, drains to capacity. There were another series that uh, had uh, depleting emotional reserves, like you say, and that would take, you know, some conventional forms like confrontational conversations where people would worry about them before, during, after, then they would find somebody else to replay that conversation 20 times, <laughs> right? So one stressful moment, you know, could, could absorb a tremendous amount. Um, but then there was uh, others of just, you know, uh, concern that's created when you're trying to take care of people. Right. And you're trying to make sure your team is taken care of and gotten the developmental opportunities or you're worried about a sick child or an aging parent. Um, and that was one of the really big things we could see in this work is that conventional forms of stress, we think about it as a negative right person or a negative interaction. And yet some of the biggest stressors in people's lives were actually the people they loved uh, and cared about the most. Right. And so that was that was hitting people in different ways. Uh, and then the, the last category were really uh, even more subtle and over time, but there were challenges to identity. Right. And just interactions that were slowly pushing us away uh, farther and farther from being who we wanted to be at the end of the day. So that might take the form of uh, revenue pressure, you know, and, and people really overselling in situations or physicians that we spoke with. You know, suddenly they're not able to care for patients and the way that they feel is merited or the way they invested uh, a tremendous amount of their life, you know, in med school. Um, and it's those those kind of slow interactions that slowly uh, kind of have us waking up one day going, wow, you know, I'm not where I meant to be. And there were numerous stories of this, people pulling into a garage and, you know, having a free day out of the blue and suddenly realizing they had no hobbies, friends left, their children were off, you know, in different ways. And they just become, you know, very, very unidimensional uh, in their life. Uh, and those were the things that that kind of happened when you allowed the challenges to identity to kind of creep up around you. So, so 14 of them. And, you know, what we do with that um, is uh, to consolidate it down is really have people reflect on three questions with those 14. One is, um, you know, where are these hitting your life systemically enough that you should do something about, right? Two or three that you should uh, address. And just addressing the negative is a big deal. You know, people don't think about it as much, but what we know from social psychology is the negative interactions have three to five times the impact of the positives on us. So finding ways to alter those actually is a huge boon to our well being <laughs> if we do that versus just persisting through. 
Then we have people reflect on where two or three of these are causing others because we know the stress we unnecessarily cause inevitably boomerangs back on us. And then two or three that you just need to rise above. You know, you've gotten down into the minutia on something at work or a battle with a child over something that just doesn't matter. Um, and backing away from that can have big, uh, you know, big impact. What we find is, you know, that that idea of, you know, systematically looking at just a couple of these micro stresses, what you're experiencing, what you're causing, what you need to rise above, actually makes these um, concepts very actionable for people. You know, it's not a tsunami or all the micro stresses you're trying to avoid. It's actually targeted action that you can uh, take and have impact on. What I really like about this book, it takes a very much a coaching approach. What we just discussed there is all on a table, very easy. And again, it it really empowers the reader to take responsibility for their own behavior. So I'm going to give an example. We say, for example, that 95%, and I was doing that little 5% of that workload. And then I'm doing that for maybe five people or six people or whatever on my team. There's a piece where... I might be sending the signals out because it plays to my ego that I like to be the go-to person or the expert. I have that need to feel needed or that need to be the expert or the go-to person. So again, you're challenging people then to say, well, what's your role, what you can do about it? And again, there, sometimes there needs to be transparency on, on limits or boundaries. Is that correct? Right. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we see this in this work and in my prior book, Beyond Collaboration Overload, is we are our own worst enemies today. You know, and it's, it's fascinating to me. The reality is we have never had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with, but we give it up very quickly. And, and a lot of it tends to be driven by these knee-jerk reactions we have, like we, we you know, want to help others, right? And so we show up and we help in ways that isn't creating capability, but creating a reliance on ourselves, right? And, and it comes back to us or we're um, scared, right, of what our colleagues think and, and we jump in or we of accomplishment. That's my thing, right? If I see a five minute window, I will try to jam 60 minutes to stop in it and ignore the two to three hours that I should be coordinating with my team. And it inevitably doesn't hit me in that moment. That moment, I feel great. And I feel like I've done something significant. It's always four, six, eight weeks later that I'm muttering it. Why is this so hard? Right. And usually it's something I've caused, right, by the virtue of the way that I jump in. Uh, so I think that's a huge deal, you know, for people is to be aware of what's that trigger, you know, and is it status? Do you like to be the person? Is it um, concern over letting go? You feel like you're the one that can do it the quickest, but the accumulation is going to cause you problems. Um, you know, we see that's a huge deal to, to really reflect on and get your own mind around to see how are you your own worst enemy ultimately <laughs> uh, today. And when we talk about boundaries, then what would boundaries look like for if I was listening in and I'm, I'm driving my car or I'm going for a walk, what might boundaries look like? So uh, one of the examples I tell a lot with this is a story that's personal to me, but, you know, these are replete in the in the book. So I have a, a beautiful daughter, 23 year old, spectacular young woman that is the you know source of purpose in my life inspiration. She teaches me as much as I learned. Uh, she learns from me, you know, in terms of how to live more intentionally, huge sense of humor. She calls me baldy all the time, you know, and just, just constantly, we have a great relationship. Um, but Rachel and I, she was a high level tennis player in the U S as so she was coming through the junior, she was somewhere around 50 in the country, something like that. And we came from a very small market, but we traveled to these national tournaments 
And so we would always be relying on each other, you know, to get things done. I didn't know much about the sport. I was just trying to let her do what, what she was meant to do in life. And, uh, and, and what happened in that is like, anytime anything went wrong, she would come to me, right? It would be Baldy, this happened, Baldy, this happened, you know, and whatever it may be. And it was a pattern we, we got into there that then persisted until this young woman is just accepted into med school, you know, and about to go, you know, off and become a doctor at some point. And what we discovered one night over a glass of wine is that, you know, I get these texts five, 10, 15 a week over things that mean nothing to her. She sends these things on their five second reactions, but I would absorb them and think about them for three or four hours, right? In the back of my mind. And, and you know, we were laughing about it. I said, well, you know, if it doesn't mean anything, don't send it. Because <laughs> I experience it very differently than, you know, what you're, what you're sending. And so she doesn't, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm telling her not to tell me when stress is real, right? Or when she does need help. But we've taken out the interactions that were unnecessary there, right? And what I find is when people look at it this way, not how do I dump this person out of my life um, or how do I push them away or, or affect the relationship? And you start looking to say, what are the interactions in the relationship, right? That if we can adapt that, um, we actually have a sea of possibilities out there. So I struggle with the boundary idea because a lot of times what people are saying is they're shutting down the whole relationship and they're not focusing in on the um, the interactions that actually can be pivoted pretty quickly. And then I also struggle with it because um, people are also the, the biggest antidote to this stuff. Right? The people that rise above this stress, they are connected authentically in small moments with other people. So when you go through all these counseling programs where people are saying you need to put boundaries up, um, if they're not doing it in certain ways, they're actually pulling themselves out of the things that will cure them in, in some ways going forward. And I worry about that as I see this as a, as a professor and some of the younger students kind of going through our programs today. And speaking about counseling, then this might lead us to our, our next piece of who could be the source of your micro stress. So it could be work, could be colleagues, could be your manager, uh, could be a personal life. Tell us a little bit more about sources of stress. Yeah. And so we talk a, a lot about this in chapter five, you know, and saying, here's a, a way of looking at this where you think about what are the micro stresses and then across the top, this table that's saying, where are they coming from? You know, what are the, the, the sources of them, if you will? And usually it boils down to, you know, a, a leader, uh, some form of stakeholder that may be a client or somebody else that you're, you know, accountable to with your work. Um, colleagues um, distributed through organization, people on your team or teams, um, those tend to be the primary sources in different ways. But then we also push people to think outside, you know, and thinking about where loved ones uh, created. We uh, are finding in general that of the 14 micro stresses, one is negative and draining interactions with family and friends. And that um, on an app that we built from this book and put up on the Apple store, um, that is the most selected micro stress. <laughs> 60% of people are picking that one when they go into it to learn a little bit more. And so um, thinking, you know, not again, just about the professional drivers of this, but how it's manifesting in your personal life. Um, you know, those tend to take the form of friends that are going through drama or trouble, um, children, uh, aging parents, um, you know, so sig significantly we're seeing as we've lost the quality of relationships in our lives, we put more pressure on our spouse and our parents um, for these negative interactions. And so a lot of that is where we're, we're seeing the sources of those micro stresses. 
Indeed, it could be a, a spouse. And I'm looking at various different uh, aspects of personal capacity, uh, as well as the emotional reserves and challenge your identity. And these all can be drained. So, for example, draining uh, negative interactions with family, friends, it could be co- confrontational conversations with people, mistrust in your network. It could be political m- maneuvering at work mm-hmm. or mistrust at work. There's all these different things that could be draining us. Right. And the, the interesting thing, when we have people do the exercise I was describing, you know, say where are three or four of these impacting you that are systemic enough that you can do something about where are three or four that you're unnecessarily causing because inevitably that stress boomerangs back on you and where are three or four that you can rise above. You know, the knee jerk reaction for everybody is I'll, I'll turn around in a room as I'm walking around it and I'll see people have 20 exits <laughs> in here, you know, and it's, to me, it's a marker of just how um, we are enmeshed in a sea of this stuff now because of how we're so hyper-connected in different ways. Uh, and what I'm always saying to people is don't, don't focus on it that way. You know, just get down to three or four right, that are systemic enough that, and you can change it like I did with my daughter. You know, that was a very easy yeah. change in our relationship and had a huge impact on me. Um, and, and it's really worth paying attention to because, again, of the, the asymmetry. Right? Negative relationships have three to five times the impact of the positives. Um, but for some reason, we don't, we don't look for those opportunities naturally. When I do my programs now, and we're you know doing tons of organizations focusing on this as a way to impact well-being and reduce burnout, um, the knee-jerk reaction for everybody is to reach to a positive, you know, to say, okay, I need to build this into my life, um, and not to say, how do I shape the the negative, right? And yet again, you have three to five times the impact of removing a negative uh, from from what's going on, and so that's one of the the areas that I'm constantly emphasizing for people to really focus in on. I think that's really insightful. And when we talk about maybe pushing back a little bit or those conversations, what are the opportunities? Say, for example, there's expectations that others are, you know, I might have a, you know, a team isn't aligned or something like that. We need to push back a little bit or it could be, for example, you know, if there's a misalignment in the team or misperformances, you know, all these different things is there an element there where we can push back or is there opportunities there that we can say, you know, hold on here, we need, we need to have a real conversation here? Yeah, I think there are, you know, with each of the micro stresses. So the micro stress uh, that formed, as you know, the first half of the book. Right. And then the second half was really geared around what was fascinating to me is, you know, these are all conventionally super successful people, right? In great organizations. And, you know, the first 10 minutes of every single interview, it was rainbows and lollipops, like everything was great. <laughs> and then you kind of slowly tease it apart, minute 30, minute 45, you're starting to get down to where people have, you know, cracks. And, and you know, some people leg- legitimately choked up on us at the end of the interview, just trying to manage kind of both personal and professional uh, in different ways. Yet about 10% never did that. Right. 10% actually stayed super positive. And so the second half of the book is really geared in on what are some of the things that they were doing, right? That group that enabled them to integrate uh, life in different ways. 
Um, but through the, the first half of the book, what we see is there are definitely different strategies, right, on each of these micro stresses um, that you can deploy. And we have tools built uh, on each of them. And they're, they're different, right? If you're worrying about a conflictual conversation, right, there's a way to set that up, emphasize the evidence, start, you know, with what you can do differently, what we can shape in the context than the other person, very prescribed things, right, that, that kind of make that interaction, um, you know, more neutral, right, and more likely to be constructive uh, than, say, you know, if it's um, misaligned performance expectations, right, that's much more about how do you um, ensure that there's a consistency of people showing up and create social pressure, right, on everybody to come in committed and, and delivering uh, in productive ways. So each of the individual tools are different, um, you know, as we went as we went through this, but I think each of them are actionable. Now, I say that, and as you can imagine, some situations in your life, like it's easier for me to potentially alter the interaction with my daughter than maybe one of my consortium members, <laughs> you know? And so you have to kind of pick what is the areas that you can um, most likely have a positive impact. But again, I go back to that same idea and you hear me say it five times, probably, you know, three to five times the impact from removing a negative, right? And it's worth kind of thinking about uh, on those lines. So speaking of confrontational conversations and Let's say, for example, I have a very unpredictable manager or boss. What, how might I frame the conversation or what are the things worth considering before I approach my manager? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it would boil down to help, helping them become aware, right, of what they're kind of creating in the in the shifts and expectations. So the unpredictable authority figure, they tend to create stress by shifting the what of the work, right? The, the, the what you're actually doing is shifting dramatically, shifting the performance expectations, whether it's timeline, quality, you know, magnitude, whatever that is. Or they're just emotionally showing up different from point A to point B, and you you know you 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 don't know who you're going to get right. And everybody's had that experience. Then oh my gosh, that stinks. What we oftentimes miss is the secondary ripple effects of these uh, kinds of interactions. So you end up having to protect your team in certain ways or to keep them motivated. Or if you have gone on a certain trajectory with your work and negotiated alliances with four or five other people to get that work done, um, you may be stuck delivering what you committed to to them and then having to find two new friends, right, to, to get things done. And what I find is the people that were better at this, they would make that transparent to those leaders and just make sure they had an understanding of when these shifts happen, here's the ripple effect. And then they would start to put in place mechanisms that help prioritize in the moment uh, a little bit better. So one of my favorite interviews, a very um, really articulate young woman that was saying to me, my boss is crazy. You know, she didn't say it that way, but she said it's constantly shifting things. And so her solution to it was she started doing this impact to effort grid, right? Which I think came from Stephen Covey. Uh, and, you know, when he would come with an ask, <clears throat> they would just talk about it quickly. They would plot it out initially and just say, okay, what well, is this is high effort, low impact. It's probably not worth doing or we reprioritize it against other things that are going on. Um, and, you know, what she said is the first time she she did that, he almost had an aneurysm, <laughs> you know, completely used to getting any sort of pushback or anything like that. But as they got into a pattern, then he began to understand the true collaborative ask, you know, and that's generally what's happened. It's not been the work that's gone up. It's the collaborations required to get the work done today is magnified like crazy. And the leaders don't see that or have visibility into it. Um, and so that actually started to shape what he asked for too, right? And I find that over and over again. A lot of times it's not that the leaders are, you know, not thoughtful. It's just that they don't have transparency, 
into it. And their tools are to throw teams and task forces and everything uh, at things. So that's one example. And there were other prioritization in the moment kinds of things that we talk about in the book that has, has good impact for that. I love that impact effort map. I only used that at a facilitation last week. And that then reminds me to ask you about the temper centers. You have mentioned this before. You mentioned several times in the book, all the strategies that these temper centers, they seem to be thriving uh, all the time. They, they're, they're always flourishing. So what are some of examples of strategies that temper centers do? Yeah, great question. So, you know, for me, there were two big principles that I walked away with um, from them. And there was a lot more, like in terms of physical health, they were much more likely to embed an activity that they were doing into a group of people. And I can come back to that if we want, you know, some examples of that. Um, But the two things that really stuck out to me overall is they were much more likely to live the small moments more authentically with others. You know, you would tend to find that they may do big things like hike the Himalayas, right, or write a concerto or things like that. But throughout all of them, that wasn't what was creating that deep sense of contentment, right, and that life is good and that I'm moving in the right direction. What was creating that was, you know, finding ways to live small moments more authentically with others. And so an example uh, for me in that was um, uh, a Silicon Valley executive, super successful. She very, one of the top organizations out there, she ran the venture fund and was chief strategy officer. And so very successful, right? Type A personality. And she'd come out of, I think it was Stanford. I can't quite remember, but, um, and she'd been a runner all her life, right? Through, through running at Stanford. And when I interviewed her, she was probably mid forties and one of her first comments to me was, you know, she said, Rob, I let society define what running was good for, for me. And it was a huge mistake in my life. And by that, she meant um, she would pursue personal best, right? For in the races that she was running. And if she didn't get a personal best in a given year, it was a bad year for running, right? And it sounds silly, right? Because our bodies are going to age and we're not going to be able to do this, especially with the demands of work and family, you know, taking over. But it was structuring her life. Right. She would get up a little earlier to stretch a little bit more time with a trainer away from people she cared about to try and keep that you know, goal that was society's definition of what running is for. Right. Is to hit that personal best time. And then she said she woke up one day and she said, what I really want to be doing is running with my daughter, her best friend, a parent. And that evolved into this community of parents and children that were running uh, to, to be healthy. And so what she did there is um, something I think we all have the ability to do. You know, she wasn't saying, I'm gonna go do something entirely new and something big to get a sense of purpose in my life. She was saying, I'm just gonna pivot something I'm already doing and I'm gonna do it in a different way. I'm not gonna run this fast, but I'm gonna do it in a way that pulls me into authentic connections with two groups I care about, right? In her case, it was community and, um, and, and her, her family, her direct family. Um, and we find that you know, when people look at things that way and look at their work that way or their life outside of work, they actually have a lot of ability to kind of pivot and, and make some, some subtle shifts that can have pretty big impact. So that was one, one thing. And um, the second was mo- my most successful people, the, the 10 percenters, they almost universally had at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of outside of their profession. And um, what, what we've seen is that creates perspective, right? <laughs> so if you're a runner, you know, and you're with other people, being a runner and the identity of that helps you push back on those last five emails. You know, you prioritize something else in your life. 
But then what we miss a lot of times is you're suddenly in a context of people that are very different from you, right? You're not hanging out with chief strategy officers and tech firms, right? You may have a mechanic in your group or a mailman or other things. And those interactions and the authenticity of the friendships around that activity create perspective in life, right? And so that was the, the second big thing is these people had at least two and usually three groups outside of their profession that they were in. Now, the hard part, we talked about this earlier, but there's a legitimate rise in this form of stress as we've gone through the pandemic. The other side of the coin is we have generally, because of social distancing, stepped out of these groups that were our antidotes in different ways. And so many people aren't getting back in uh, in ways that I think are, are really critical to, uh, to well-being. So, so those are two Uber ideas, right? Live the small moments well and authentically with others, have at least two and usually three groups outside of your profession and direct family that uh, you want to be a part of. So I'm going to return to early on in the podcast where you mentioned somebody suddenly discovered they have a day off work and they arrive into their garage and they suddenly go, it's single dimensional. Is, is that what you mean by multidimensional? What, what would multidimensional mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, give an example. Um, one of my favorite interviews was a uh, head of neurosurgery or neuroscience um, at one of the most respected research institutions in the world. Right. And he had gone through the interviews with us and then a program that we were doing. And he, you know, um, walked away. And in the back of his mind, he said, I've, I've become too unidimensional. And to me, that means it's all um, pro profession, right? And providing and direct family, right? And those are good things, but taken to an extreme, they lead people into negative places generally without a couple of other yeah. things in their, uh, their lives. So his solution to it, and I got this email probably four months, five months after I'd interacted with him out of the blue, uh, and the subject line said, Rob, I've joined a rock band. <laughs> and, you know, this is an austere, you know, brilliant man and everything else about him. And what he'd done is he had gone to a, uh, he used to play guitar in high school, right? And he, you know, is one of the ways he thought, okay, I can get dimensionality back in my life is I'll appeal back to music. And he went into a, a music store and bought a guitar. And on his way out, he passed by a flyer that said, we're looking for a guitar player, right? And what we lack in quality, we make up for in volume or something like that. And and he, he joined in with these people. And when he was writing me, he said, I'm hanging out with 20 year olds, <laughs> having the time of my life, you know? And the interesting thing to me is these will never be his best friends. Right. Um, but they were giving him perspective. They were creating space. They were creating very different perspective on what's important in life um, that, that was a form of resilience for him. Right. And in the way that he was connected in uh, different ways. So so that's an example of what I mean. And what I see is people, um, if they've fallen out of these groups right, or the, or the things that created dimensionality, the three ideas. One is. Um, pick things you're already doing and find ways to pivot them in ways that'll pull them into interactions with others, right? Like my, my runner example, uh, appeal back from a passion in the past, right? That's the principle I'd want to convey with this neuro um, leader's story is everybody has that, right? We all have things, whether it's pot pottery, you know, church. I mean, there's different things that were a big part of our lives we can use to slingshot uh, into a new group. And then the third that has been really successful is, uh, appeal back to connections that you just want to rejuvenate. And there's a, a great book called The Good Life. And they put out a challenge at one point to say, you know, people should just set up seven, eight minute calls with people they want to reconnect with. And so Karen, my co-author, and I did it. And it, it is hysterical. You know, everybody you write to, and these may be grad school friends, people you haven't seen in 10, 15 years, 
and they're immediately laughing at you. They're, you sure you want eight minutes? Maybe seven and a half, we'll let me know. <laughs> you know? But, but nobody pushes an eight minute phone call three months out. You know what I mean? To say, oh, we can catch up then. They find room for it. You're laughing about it. You stick the eight minutes, say it's an experiment. Inevitably, it leads to lunch or, you know, my seven, six or have evolved to other things, right? That I'm engaged with those people on. Karen, my co-author made the mistake of putting it on Facebook and I'm kidding about it being a mistake, but she just put out the request on Facebook. She got 42 people <laughs> that wanted an eight minute call with, with Karen. But, you know, to me, what was so clear in that is people are thirsting for it. Right. And you just have to be the one that puts structure into some of this a little bit and it will materialize back for you. Speaking of connections and values, what happens if I'm I'm missing purpose? Hmm. I, so to me, what we were seeing more and more is people um, focus on I, the idea of purpose, right, as if it comes from mission or the nature of the work, right? If I can just get that, then I'll have it. And what we could see is that um, people's experience of purpose in their lives is dramatically shaped by their interactions with other people, right? And so it may be that you have bought into a, an organization's culture and leadership, right? Or it may be that you love your colleagues and you're co-creating the future together. It may be that you're, uh, you know, really appreciate the way your team operates, you're mentoring and giving back, or maybe the impact on, on stakeholders, whoever uh, consumes what you do professionally. And then personally, it can come from, you know, different stretches, right? It may be giving, it may be um, uh, uh, interactions that have more aesthetic qualities of life, like my, my guitar player, or music, religion, art, poetry, things that pull us out. And what we found there is that the people that paid attention to how their interactions with others were creating purpose um, had did much better, right? And again, to me, it's a very simple, nothing simple, but it's it's not impossible. It's not saying, gosh, for me to get purpose, I have to get completely out of, say, investment banking, right? That's a, that's a hard place to find purpose. And most people would laugh when we went through the interviews and they'd say, you know, I, I know it's about money. <laughs> and, but, you know, you can find ways to say, okay, outside of work, who do I want to be, right? And how do I show up in these small moments with others? If you, if you think about the kinds of interactions you're trying to stimulate. And, and that's on a page 180 of people are interested. There's five purpose generators, seizing opportunities to help others, pursuing personally meaningful life roles and goals, finding authentic connections in small moments, co-creating with colleagues and connection through shared values, which leads me then to purpose killers. What are purpose killers? Oh, generally, I would see them as um, interactions that just focused people, for example, exclusively on the financial impact of what they're doing, right? And obviously, Everybody has to make money. <laughs> it has to, you know, that 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 kind of financial stewardship of what leaders are doing uh, has to be there, right, for us all to survive. But when it became the only thing, right, and that was the way we start every meeting, um, or when every single interaction was about how do we, you know, get the project moving faster, not stepping back and saying why does this matter, like Simon Sinek would suggest, you know, start with the why before the what and the how. Um, those were the the subtle things that would just take actually what could be quite meaningful work. I mean, some of these organizations I was in, they were curing cancer. They were, you know, taking care of very sick children. I mean, they had purpose coming out of their ears in terms of the nobility of what they were doing, but all the interactions had, had, you know, dwindled down to, you know, fighting for budgets. Um, my work isn't as important as other people's work. 
purely timelines on all the meetings we're having, things like that, that just kind of took what could have been very meaningful work and, uh, and, and took that away, basically. Can I ask this? So say if I'm listening in and I cannot see how my work makes a, a difference, how do I connect to the team purpose or what happens if I feel lost? Yeah, I, I think people have different levers they can pull, you know, and, and to kind of reflect on that. Even so the ones, and I don't mean to denigrate any, any profession in this at all, but the ones that struggled the most on this front were certainly the Wall Street bankers, um, the uh, um, consultants, right? Where everything was about how do I sell more? But even in those contexts, those people could back away and say, you know what? I want to create an excellent organization here, right? I want to recreate who we are, how we're doing things. And they would find purpose in that, right? And finding ways to have impact in small ways, or they would really emphasize the uh, consumer impact of what they were doing, right? And thinking a little bit about how do I shape uh, the way that we're approaching the work in, in ways that has impact there. The biggest thing with the bankers for me, I'm just, and again, I hate, to, I'm not trying to denigrate any <laughs> profession. I'm just saying across, you know, all the organizations we looked at, those were the ones that, that just had less innately in the work they were doing, but they would focus a lot on mentoring, Right, and other ways that they could, you know, find outside of the profession to uh, to give back. So I think there's a lot of levers. Um, to me, it oftentimes comes down to: Are you seeing those small opportunities and leaning into those? And that that was what was kind of magical about those people in the um, less purpose oriented professions. Let me say it that way. I really appreciate about this book. We we talked about purpose there and values, and we talked about our interactions with others. And what's really good is that you, you don't have to change your the the connection, remove the connections, just change how you, 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 the interactions with that connection. And again, what I liked about the book then are sources of resilience. Then, so we might finish the podcast uh, on that, Rob. So sources of resilience, what might they be? Yeah, I you know you asked. 600 people ultimately across kind of two bodies of work I've done around this. And, uh, and you ask them to tell you about times in their lives when they had to bounce back and the stories you get are amazing. You know, you may hear that for some people, their biggest setback is they didn't get the promotion to managing director, right? The first time. And that, you know, was their kind of source of embarrassment or whatever it is, you know, out there. And then you go to the next interview and you'd hear somebody say, you know, my spouse died of pancreatic cancer and I had three young children, right? And I had to navigate that. And so the, the stories were amazing, but then what you focus on is not what did that person do to get through that moment, right? Because we're taught to believe that we own resilience. We have grit, we have fortitude, mm. things like that. But if you ask people, not what did you do, but how did you fall back on others, right? In that situation, then you ask 600, <laughs> you hear eight pretty predictable sources of resilience that we tend to get from others, right? So certainly empathy, you know, and some people needed empathy. Um, we would hear a lot of people benefit from just the kind of people that engage cognitively and said, okay, here's the path forward for you, right? And maybe people that have been in that situation before, been in that role, dealt with aging parents, whatever it may be, but they kind of saw a path forward with you. It can be people that get perspective, in a situation to kind of say, okay, in the context of life, you know, this not making managing director your first time may not be that big a deal, right? Nobody makes it, but people that kind of give perspective in a situation. Uh, for me, it's humor, 
you know, people that just help me laugh at the absurdity of a situation and kind of see um, the, you know, the ridiculousness of the different things we do to each other. Uh, and I'm good to go, right? I get a couple laughs and then that, that resets me. So what we could see in this is people that had the connections and really importantly, knew how to lean into them did better, right? So you have to go through your life in a way that's building these as you're doing your work. And then you need to be a little bit tuned into what is it that matters, right? Are you an empathy person, path forward person, humor person? Uh, and the people that kind of figured that out, they made it through not just the big setbacks, but just day-to-day -day life wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> they kind of saw it for what it was and didn't get down in the, in the minutia as much. So that was a really big deal for us because, again, people don't think of resilience that way. They tend to think about it as, as something we own, something we do. Uh, and we found that a huge proportion of it is sourced in the way we built these connections that can uh, support us in different ways. Rob, thank you so much for sharing the work that you and Karen Dillon have done with microstresses. And if people were to find more about you and about your book, how might they do so? Yeah, um, obviously the book's on Amazon and different different uh, sellers. Uh, we've also uh, put an app that's free on the Apple Store um, that allows people to go through these micro stresses and generate a uh, report for themselves, just as a service to the to the community. Uh, and then for me, it's um, I'm always very interested in people reaching out. You know, this is a, a stream of research. The book book culminated one uh, body of it, doing all our qualitative work, and now we're starting to implement these ideas in organizations and uh, testing them. So uh, a lot of that work is being put up on robcross.org, my site, you know, and, and people can get a sense of what companies are doing. And I'm always super interested in outreach, you know, where people see opportunities to do a case together or things like that. So uh, robcross.org would probably be the, uh, the best route for that. And Rob, that app then on the App Store, what's the name of that app if people were to download that? Yeah, the Micro Stress Effect app. Rob, thank you so much for the time today. It was great having you on the Workplace Podcast today. Thank you for such great answers. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you found this episode valuable, please rate and review it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at different paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.